natural selection, where this week's theme is flight. Welcome listeners to The Natural Selection, uh, a group of taxonomists who are looking to bring their passion for nature into the wild. So please welcome, uh, we were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am also Nick. Hello. So how are you two? Uh, Naomi, have you had an exciting week in England? Good. Not too much nature this week. I've seen some herons. That was cool, which is apt for our flight episode. Getting cold and a bit grey though, but you know, it's getting festive too, which is nice. Herons are a bit grey and that's exciting. Uh, uh, what about you, Nick? I Yesterday I had a little nice bike ride around Berlin and uh, near the end of the day, but which I mean like 3.30 because that's when the sun starts going down now. I sat in a park and looked at the sky. <laughs> and right then when I was looking up at the sky, a swan was so high flying up in the sky, just like passing over. I also saw some swans. I was walking by the Schrey and I was amazed at how still the Schrey is in Berlin. Because in, I've lived in like uh, uh, London where the Thames is quite a turbulent river, like it's constantly moving and there's lots of waves, it's tidal. But yeah, walking past the spray at night, it was freezing cold, but it was, it was as still, it's like a pane of glass and it was like an absolute cool. mirror and there were just swans floating down in the middle of the night. Oh, cool. In the night? Yeah. yeah. Well, I say the cool. middle of the night. It was like 9 p.m., but I'm pretty old, yeah. so for me that is, that is the middle of the night. And I cannot stress this enough, it was so cold. Like the wind from the river, oh, it was, yeah. I had thick socks and thermal underpants on and I was still cold. Um, well, should we get on with the news? Let's. Uh, I've got some interesting news this week. I found out about toads. So I'm from an island and I'm quite short and I'm really glad that I have an excuse for that. So researchers from Stellenbosch University in South Africa were researching toads that have been brought Mauritius and Reunion Island. And these are two islands in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Africa. So these toads were deliberately introduced to these islands by humans as a method of pest control. So they were growing things on the island and there are pests there. So they deliberately brought these toads over to eat those pests. So we know when they arrived on the island, which is really, really useful. They were brought there in 1922. So 98 years ago. And in fact, Reunion, I think, was five years later than that. So 1927. So even more recent. And what they found is in this short time, they have demonstrated island dwarfism or insular dwarfism. And this is quite a common phenomenon where things that appear on an island get smaller, either because there's less food or there's no predators, so there's not as much pressure to be as large. And they were assuming that this was happening over thousands or millions of years, but they were able to prove that on this island, it was happening in about 100, which was staggering. And what they found is, so in where they're from, in Durban, in South Africa, uh, the, the toads are about seven centimeters long. And the female uh, toads on Mauritius were about 34% shorter, and they were 26% shorter reunion. In Mauritius, the male toads were about 22% shorter. Well, on reunion, they, they're actually the same size. But what's really weird is on both islands, both sexes displayed legs that, that were disproportionately shorter 
uh, compared to their body than the Durban toads. So whatever happening on the island, their legs were shrinking. Unusual. Yeah. So they've got really stumpy legs for toads. Interesting. Any ideas of what was causing this or is it just unknown? With regards to the legs, they actually don't know. Uh, there's no like solid answer. But yeah, the, the island dwarfism is obviously playing a part. And it could be that they don't need to, if there's no predators, they might not need to jump quite as quickly. Um, if they're jumping away from things, I would, that is, that's my punt as an entomologist who knows nothing about toads. Really heard of, and maybe it's I misunderstood what you're saying, but I've never really heard of that island dwarfism in like just a body part instead of like a the whole animal. I always thought of it as just like a miniature version of something. Yeah, I've not heard of that either, really. There was a study that came out earlier this year on mammal island dwarfism and looking at the stumpy legs in goats in some Mediterranean islands and the the hypothesis that these researchers had was that it's sort of like a low gear for steep rocky slopes like their short legs let them like come down the slopes more efficiently and, and safer but that doesn't really make sense for frogs no i don't know but it's an interesting thing anyway that it's such a short amount of time so i hope that really amazed me now evolution Naomi it's happening all around us <laughs> Um, Naomi, I believe that you picked your news story simply so you could make puns. Is that true? Yeah, I, I chose it mostly because I found it amusing. So the piece of research I found was published in iScience, which is from Cell Press. And it was looking at aggression in monarch caterpillars. So it found that aggression is induced by resource limitation. So they found that when the caterpillars, so Danus plexippus, when they had less food, so they feed on milkweed, which is a type of plant, they showed more lunging behavior towards each other. So what's interesting about this piece of research is that it can establish these monarch caterpillars as a model for investigating these interactions. So their aggression increases under these food limiting conditions. Also, I thought it was fun so that I could say they were hangry caterpillars. We'll take it. Very hang, very hangry caterpillars. <laughs> now, Nick, you know I love a parasite. So is that why you picked your news? No, Nick. I have been thinking about dinosaurs a lot lately and stumbled across a piece of news about dinosaurs. And you might think, well, <laughs> dinosaurs have been dead for at least 65 million years. What possibly could we know that we don't already know about them? So a team of researchers working in Brazil on an interdisciplinary study combining paleontology with histology, medicine, and parasitology. And they're looking at some fossils that were preserved in an unusual way. They were preserved by a type of phosphatization rather than a diagenetic or like replacement fossilization. So research team was looking at the fossil of a senile titanosaur from the upper Cretaceous in Southeast Brazil. So it's basically a hundred, between 166 million years ago. Senile. The senile. So the titanosaurs are the largest living land animals that ever lived. And this one must have been pretty big because it was super old, which basically means in the animal kingdom, if something is senile, it means it can't really eat anymore. Its teeth have worn down. But this one was found with a really interesting 
bone element inside the vascular canals, which are preserved because of this strange phosphatization fossilization technique, they found a type of parasitic animal living inside the vascular canals of the dinosaur and causing uh, inflammation of the bone marrow called osteomyelitis. So this team was pulling together, basically looking at modern techniques of histology, and then also looking at paleontology and fusing them into one field to say the relationship between parasites and vertebrates has existed much longer than we have at previously had evidence. In the highlight of this journal article, they say this is the first report of fossil parasites preserved inside the vascular canals of a non-avian dinosaur, uh, which seems like a lot of hedging to, to me. That is cool. And it's inside their blood. Yeah, yeah. I imagine they must be big, the blood vessels. My only question is, and forgive my ignorance, but doesn't senile mean someone who is sort of old and losing their faculties a bit? Exactly. And in the animal kingdom, that means losing the faculty of eating. <laughs> oh, I see. I didn't know that. That's interesting. No, I think more technically, it can be used to it's a, as a medical condition to describe um, something characterized by old age. Like senile decay is something that you see in old animals, especially ones that eat rough grass. Their teeth will wear down and then they can't chew anymore. And that's often the mm. cause of death. Oh, interesting. That's really cool research. I really like that. It's not such great news, but it's not bad for anyone but the dinosaurs that had these parasites. So. And that does bring us to the end of the news. So would you, uh, you guys up for talking about our theme this week? Let's take off into the world of flight. <laughs> yes, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, I'm not that prepared, but I think I'll just wing it. But yeah, listeners, do join us after this short break. We'll be back to talk about flight. Nick, your puns are the wind beneath my wings. Well, listeners, we are here to talk about flight. And I bet you've wondered, how much do these guys know about flight? But Naomi has very kindly and very cleverly deduced a way where we can find out. I have. So I thought I'd kick off this episode with a quiz for you guys and listeners at home. So uh -huh. if you guys are ready, I have some questions for you all about flight. First question, true or false? Bats have hollow bones. I'm going to say false. I reckon it's false. You would both be correct. That is false. Second question, birds or avian dinosaurs were the first vertebrates to evolve powered flight. True or false? False. False. Yes. And I will explain which animals were the first later. Question three, how many, how many species of flightless bird are there? And um, so I will get whoever is closest to get this. Well, there's at least one because we've talked about <laughs> on every episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is such a question that I really worry that an answer I give could be just wildly stupid. Yeah. And I don't even, I'm, gonna... I'm worried if I said like 200, you guys would be like, it's actually 20 or it's actually 40,000. Like, <laughs> I, like, I don't know which trend it would be silly, but uh, I'm going to guess 300. Okay. I'm going to say 50. 
Nick is closer. Nick, <laughs> never mind. Let me go. Let me start that again. <laughs> um, so it's sixty. So. Oh. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. Is it? Can I? Can I ask? Uh, is it actually sixty-three now? Um, have you included the four new species of penguin? from our last episode's news. No, I haven't. Yeah, so probably is. So that um, number was around 60. So there's probably like maybe, yeah, 63, 64. And I think some people, I think there's other species. Yeah, of some people say about 290. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so question four, true or false? Chiroptera or bats are the third largest order of mammals? False. False. Yes, you're both correct. It's the second. Oh, what's the first? Is it rodents? Rodents. It is, yeah. Oh, those little rodents. With their <laughs> teeth. Oh. <laughs> their teeth and their little um, fingers. <laughs> so this question, I wanted to test whether you guys were listening to me in a previous episode. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is the characteristics in birds that has been found to have the largest effect on egg shape? Oh, uh, flight speed. Yes, yeah. Hint, it's the theme of the episode. Yeah, so it's flight. <laughs> um, uh, next question. The largest fly- what is the largest flying bird according to Wingspan? Who's Wingspan? <laughs> I don't know him. No. Or her. Is he like a, is he, yes. Are they an avia, are they an avian expert? I, uh... <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. Span? I don't know them. <laughs> Uh, is it the Californian condor? No. I'm going to go with the um, Andean condor. It's a wandering albatross. Uh, what? Mm. I nearly said albatross, but... Um, What's yeah, the I, wingspan? It is 11 feet. Oh. Wingspan. Almost four meters. <laughs> Almost 12 feet. And at times it could, yeah, at times it could reach 12 feet. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. So the next question, and I think Nick already told us something like this before. What is the smallest known flying insect? It's a tiny, 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 tiny wasp. It is a tiny, tiny wasp. Is is it called a fairy wasp? It is, yeah. So this particular species is called kikiki, (laughs) and it's found in Hawaii. Yeah, it's only 0.15 millimeters. That's too small. It's really small. What's that in feet? It's got, well, it's got six of them, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's half an albatross. And then, so I have another insect related question. True or false, insects once had wingspans of over 70 centimeters. True. I can believe that. Yeah, so there was a... Genus of extinct insect, uh, Meganeura, which are related to modern day dragonflies. And yeah, they had a wingspan that could range up to over 70 centimeters. Wow. And then final question, uh, what was the largest flying animal ever? I've seen a model of it because I used to work next to one and I've completely forgotten its name. I feel like Nick's really excited. So do you know Nick? I literally was reading about this this morning. Not because of this episode, but because I was looking at some paleontology stuff and I saw a model of the Quetzalcoatlus. Yes! Uh, which is like 
so cool. I hope we're going to talk about that later in the, in the section, Naomi. I'm going to mention that. So yeah, cool. that, that's it. Exactly. And that's yeah. my last question. I used to work at an exhibition called Dinosaurs Unleashed. And it was in the O2 Centre in London. And then the O2 Centre is massive. So halfway round, they hung a life size of this um, pterosaur from the ceiling. And yeah, it was insanely huge. So usually in things like this, we like to start with maybe how did flight evolve or why did flight evolve as a big question. But one of the problems with flight is it's uh, actually an untestable hypothesis. So there's a few theories as why it does. But mainly we just know that things do fly. Uh, so that's what we're gonna talk about. And Nick, I think you wanted to start with something pretty small. Yeah, I'm glad that we ended with the pterosaurs there, Naomi, because the thing that I wanted to talk about and introduce our episode with is a bit on the unexpected side of things that fly. They're the not the biggest, but the smallest things. I want to introduce and talk about aeroplankton which if we recall our episode on oceans, we talked a bit about plankton. And I think that we talked about what plankton means and what thing that it includes. Just as a little reminder or a memory jog for those of you who didn't uh, remember exactly everything that we've said in every episode. And for those of you tuning in just for the first time today, plankton is basically something that wanders. So plankton is not a monster. Like an albatross. Like the wandering albatross. Plankton <laughs> refers to a type of locomotion rather than an evolutionary branch or a, a group of animals. So it can include things in the sea as different as the jellyfish and little crab larvae and algae and things that are all over the tree of life in different places, but they all move around with their primary form of locomotion as uh, the currents. So they don't really have much control in where they go, but they go far and wide because the ocean takes them there. Aeroplankton is what you just might imagine if you put together a little bit of those um, word pieces. You get things that wander in the air. And these are things that float in the air currents above the land and sea. Apparently, hundreds of millions of airborne viruses and tens of millions of bacteria land every day on every square meter everywhere on earth carried there by currents in the air so it's like a constant rainfall of microbes coming from these currents in the sky and they include things as distinct as bacteria and viruses algae and different plants uh, including the mosses the spores of mosses and liverworts uh, protists and i found this was really interesting in in the research that i was looking at it said about a thousand species of bacteria which seems like a lowball, as usually I think biodiversity statistics on bacteria are, but they said 40,000 species of fungi can live as aeroplankton, which is wild to me. And these are things that live any part of their life cycle in the air as their primary home, which seems so unusual to us who live here on the ground. Those things include tiny spiders, which do something called ballooning. Any of you guys want to take a guess at ballooning might be? Yes. Let's it, it is where they release a bit of web that is very, very light, but will catch the wind and it goes above their head and they hold on for dear life. That's exactly right. They get caught. What, a, up. what a lucky guess. <laughs> really good. 
Well, actually, that's how they got to Hawaii. So that's how I knew that. Hmm. The Hawaii is the most isolated island chain in the world. And there's multiple species of spiders who got there. And that's how they got there. They flew on the wind. So if you had a fear of spiders, don't worry. They're mainly just flying about above your head at all times. It's true. Apparently, weather balloons up to five kilometers high have reported spider landings, as have ships sailing in the middle of the ocean. But uh, according to the research that I did, uh, the line, this line was included about talking about spiders and ballooning. Mortality is high. So, um, For the spiders or the sailors? <laughs> we can only guess. That's where the narrative ended. So they're pretty small things that fly. But Gnomes, you already touched on it. I think you, wanted a, I think you should bring up the biggest things that could fly. I decided to research pterosaurs this week. So a little bit of background before I... I will talk about the largest pterosaur, don't worry. Uh, but just before I start, I'll give a bit of background about pterosaurs. So they existed during the Mesozoic. So this is the period from the late... Uh, from the late Triassic to the end of the Cretaceous. So we're talking about 228 until um, about 66 million years ago. So this is the same time as dinosaurs were around, but just importantly, pterosaurs aren't flying dinosaurs. They often get called that, but they don't belong to the same group. They're separate. And there's two main types of pterosaurs. So there's the basal pterosaurs, which are, can also be called rampharynchoids. Uh, so these are smaller. Uh, they had fully toothed jaws. They had typically long tails, and their wings were generally joined to their tails as well. Uh, they tended to have a more kind of sprawling and awkward posture on the ground. But from their anatomy and from their claws, it is suggested that they were pretty good climbers. So they probably lived in trees. And they would have been maybe insectivores, or they would have fed on small vertebrates. The later pterosaurs, and I think this is what you'd classically think of when you think about a, a pterosaur, are called the pterodactyloids. And these evolved many different sizes, shapes, and lifestyles. So they had narrow wings, and their hind limbs were free. They also had really reduced tails and long necks with large heads. Uh, so on the ground, they would have walked pretty well on four limbs uh, with kind of an up, upright posture. So their back legs would have being flat on the ground like our feet are, plantigrade, and their front legs would have, uh, so the way their wing is developed, uh, their last digit is really elongated to make the end of their wings. So they would have walked with their other three fingers curled under um, in kind of a three-fingered hand position. And so because they were the only vertebrates in the air at the time, they would have been pretty uncontested. Uh, so they kind of colonized all these areas and like lots of different niches and stuff. So the smallest pterosaur measured no bigger than about a sparrow. And then the biggest one, so the one I mentioned earlier, which is the Quetzalcoatlus nothropi. So it was the largest, it was about the size of a giraffe, which is crazy. Uh, so it's about 16 feet tall and its wingspan would have measured about 40 feet, 12 meters, which is larger than an F-16 fighter plane. So is a little bit of controversy surrounding this pterosaur. As you can imagine, it was very large and uh, it's thought to be the largest animal that is capable of powered flight. However, there are some people who debate this. So depending on how you measure the pterosaur, some people think that it probably wasn't able to fly. And then other people are, are pretty adamant in thinking that it can. So 
as far as I could tell, the, the common idea now is that they probably could fly. So they were able to have a very powerful push off off the ground. And then after that, they probably would have been able to use like natural thermals to kind of help themselves soar in the air. So, but it is interesting. And it's one of those things as well, hard to ever be sure of because it's really hard to get measures of things like mass. And so weight is one of the limiting factors when it comes to flying. So it can be really hard to tell whether it would have actually been able to fly or not, but there's some pretty good evidence that it could, particularly looking at its joints and different things. They, it really did seem like certain adaptations it had wouldn't have made sense if it didn't fly. Another really cool fossil that has been found is they found an egg inside an oviduct of a Darwinopterus pterosaur from China. And they also found another egg that had been pushed out during the impact that had killed her. Um, so she was called Mrs. T for Mrs. Pterosaur. And uh, she became the first pterosaur that had uh, been indisputably identified by sex. So this is really interesting because she didn't have a head crest. So this actually provided solid evidence that some male pterosaurs, as with birds, modern birds, had crests, which probably functioned as a sexual display device. Uh, so this is a really cool discovery as well that at least in some species of pterosaur, that there was a indisputable sex difference, which is pretty cool. Did you say Mrs. T? Yeah, Mrs. T. I know it. Yeah, pterosaur begins with a, a P. Yeah. <laughs> um, I said earlier that it was, I was reading about pterosaurs this morning, and I the little diagram that they showed me was the smallest one that at least at the time of this writing was pterodactylus, which is the super like little sparrow one. And it has it next to a size of a person who's like two meters and then pteranodon. And I was like, wow, pteranodon is so big. It's like three times the size of this person. And then I like, my eye hadn't seen the Quetzalcoatlus yet. And then I noticed that and was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's so big. I know. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like, I just like keep thinking about a flying giraffe and... The mind boggles. My main worry with that one is, do you just go, do you say pterosaur? Or do you, like any good housemate in the middle of the night, uh, go with the silent P? Silent P. Uh, yeah, silent usually P? go with the silent P. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. So yeah, pterosaur. Well, you have to think it as you say pterosaur. <laughs> I can <laughs> tell you thinking it. It gives it a nice little like hesitation that isn't there if you just say pterosaur with a T. I think it's interesting that pterosaur means winged lizard, but dinosaur means terrible lizard. So really, it sounds to me like ter the terrible one should be the pterosaur, but... Oh, yeah. Different. That's not how language works, I guess. So that sounds like the most terrifying thing imaginable flying through the skies. Which is what I thought about this week, because while you guys were thinking about things that might fly above us, my mind went to fight or flight. So the idea of running away. So I imagine everyone at home and us, no people are more willing to walk into a risky situation, whether that be something for us, which is actually risky, like uh, sort of extreme sports or skydiving or just uh, talking to new people in a party, things like that. There are certain people who are much more willing to um, do the thing which might cause fear. They found that animals also similarly do this. 
and that they actually, some of them, are more resistant to flight. And there was a study in 1992 where they were looking at guppies, a group of fish, and they were sorted into bold, ordinary, or timid groups based on their reactions when they were confronted with a small mouth bass, which is a predator. And they could either inspect the predator, hide, or swim away. And those were the three sort of ways they could uh, interact. And they were left in a tank with the bass. And after 60 hours, 40% of the timid guppies and 15% of the ordinary guppies were still alive, while none of the bold guppies were. Okay, timidity, here we go. So yeah, so in that instance, flight saved their life. And obviously this is a very odd experiment because you're not usually locked in a tank with your predator. In the open ocean, uh, unwillingness to run away might actually be an advantage because you might be able to get more resources or waste less resources running away when unnecessary. But in this tank, in this situation, it actually saved their life. And this led me to something quite amazing, which is the flight zone. Have you guys heard of the flight zone? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's like a, a trampoline gym where it's all trampoline. <laughs> Oh, sorry, exactly. that's the sky zone. That's the sky zone. <laughs> no, I don't know that one. That's where Nick has all his birthday parties. <laughs> <laughs> I tr I've tried, I've tried, but um, alas, we're in a time where there's no flight zone. So the flight distance or flight zone might be used as a measurement of the willingness of an animal to take risks. So what it is, is the area, if you imagine a ring around an animal, and this ring could get bigger or larger depending on the animal or the individual. But it is the area around the animal that if something threatening steps into it, that it will fly away or run away. And this is its flight zone. So we might have experienced this um, and seen the different sizes. I don't know if anyone has been walking in the woods or in a field and has come across a deer. And you'll notice that quite often when you get pretty close to deer, as soon as it notices you, it will run away. But if you imagine in a city, you could basically walk up to a pigeon and sit next to it and it, it wouldn't move at all. And this is because those two different animals have different flight zones. And the pigeons is much smaller. And what they found is, and this was with bird species, is bird species with long flight zones had declining population trends across Europe. And this makes sense because in Europe, there's a very high population density. So there's not a lot of space. So if every time that this flight zone is crossed, they fly away, it's gonna be interrupted so much that it's gonna be negatively impact on their life. And this is what's happening in Europe. And also that larger birds tend to have a larger flight zone. This may be that even though they're larger, this might protect them. It also takes them longer to run away because they might need to start running to begin their flight process. So they will be more timid in that regard when a predator is nearby which means that large birds are disproportionately likely to become endangered in Europe. But this is all because of the flight zone. When controlled for other factors, the flight zone is the most important thing. So understanding this might be really, really important in future conservation. Around the flight zone, there's another zone called the alert distance. And this is before they've run away. This is where if they see something there, they're like, look up and pay attention and to see if it crosses into their flight zone. So it, yeah, there's sort of the general area, alert zone, and then flight zone, which, yeah, I thought was pretty cool. And it made me think about what my flight zone is. And I don't really know. That, that's really cool. That's so interesting. It's, it's interesting as well when you talk about it, because I think 
you mentioned before that pigeons have a very like low flight zone and it's I suppose they're they're so common as well in cities it makes sense why that why they would be like that but yeah it's it's sad that other birds are being negatively affected because of it what's really cool is if you manage to get into their flight zone without them noticing there is an area even closer to them which is called the fight zone which is if they discover you in that zone they cannot fly away so the instinct is just go at you and that is the <laughs> fight zone is that true for just pigeons or for everyone because i feel like if somebody ended up <laughs> really close to me without me noticing it and i suddenly noticed them i would I don't, I'm not aggressive, but I would fight them. Yeah, that is uh, a general rule for animals, that they will have a fight zone. Not, not all of there's obviously going to be exceptions and, and this might change. But yeah, human beings definitely have one. Like if we're walking alone and someone jumps on our back, our instinct is probably to fight rather than run away. Whereas if we are walking alone and someone starts running towards us, we would probably start running away rather than running at them swinging. Yeah. Nick, we've, we've gone over the flight zone and the fight zone. Can you explain to me, please, the friend zone? <laughs> it doesn't exist. Nick, one of my my biggest fight or flight responses is triggered by um, the wasps here in Berlin, which really doesn't make that much sense because I've seen them and they've been around me so much and they've never, I've, I haven't been stung by them. And I, even from what I've heard from you getting stung this summer, they don't hurt that much. And, but on the other yeah. hand, I love honeybees and I'm allergic to them, but, and they don't trigger a flight, flight response in me, despite the allergy. But that brings me to my next topic, honeybees. How is that for a transition? Beautiful. Thank you. So I'm sure because all of us grew up in a world filled with lies and rumors that we've heard that bees can't fly. Now, is that true? Have you guys heard that? Yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah. What, the way it was explained to me was that bees, they defy the rules of aerodynamics. Yeah, that's uh, what I'd heard. Right. Which uh, was true in the 1930s when our understanding of aerodynamics was limited to... <laughs> okay, before, before bees changed. What people, and by people, I mean the French entomologist Auguste Magnin, said was that bees aerodynamically just can't fly. It's a bit of a paradox, it's a mystery, we, it doesn't make sense. And it turns out, based on some research from a team of researchers at Caltech that published a study in 2005, that the reason that Magnan had some difficulties understanding the flight of bees is because they fly differently than almost all other insects that fly. So most other insects that fly pump their wings up and down and create a vortex that attaches to the wing of the insect as the wing beats. So it sort of follows the wing down and it creates a drag and lift in this sort of the same way that an airplane would, or a bird's wing. And this doesn't make sense with bees because their wings are quite short compared to their bodies and their bodies are quite large and heavy compared to their wings. Whereas in other insects, you think of a dragonfly, they have such wide wings that they get a lot of lift from each beat that they do. Most insects, what they do is they have a large amplitude of the wing stroke. So they go really high and really low. I know you can't see the demonstrations that I'm making, but be assured they're beautiful. So the wings go high and low and they don't beat too fast. Yeah. Uh, honeybees, on the other hand, beat 
with a low amplitude. So they don't go too high or too low, but they be incredibly fast, up to 260 times per second, which seems a, a little, that seems pretty fast to me. But this really short amplitude and fast beating also happens in a different plane than most insects. So like we said earlier, their beat goes up and down, but with bees, their wing is tilted at an angle to the ground and they move forward and backwards. So sort of if you imagine you're sitting in a pool of water and you move your hands across the surface of the water, front and back, you'd notice that your hands would turn so that as you're moving forward, they're sort of at a 45 degree angle facing towards the direction that you're moving them. And then when you turn them back, the other side of your hand goes, flips up and is at that same angle going back. And that's how bees' wings hit the air. So it allows them to get a lot of lift, uh, even though they have a pretty high load that they have to carry their big bodies. So that's, that's Nick on why bees can fly. Thank you for clearing that up because I feel like the bee movie misled us all, you know? What's it's the... not okay to have a relationship with a bee. That's weird. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> touch on that, but that is weird. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it also says that at the beginning that like bees shouldn't be capable of flying. But as you said, that it's not right. Thank you. That's pretty, that's, that is, that's cool. That is very cool. Yes. So it's good to know that bees don't break the laws of physics. But there are different ways of flying. And that's the way bees do it. But Gnomes, I believe you were looking at things that were somewhat larger than bees. Yes, so I was looking, I would say I was mostly looking at pterosaurs because I sort of gotten a bit of a loop looking at pterosaurs, but um, this kind of also applies to other vertebrates that can fly. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, some adaptations that these vertebrates, uh, particularly pterosaurs, have. So one is that they have light bones. So pterosaurs' bones are hollow, um, they have thin walls, and they have struts so that they're lightweight, but they're still strong. Birds are the same. Uh, birds also have hollow bones, and but bats, as I we mentioned in the quiz, don't have hollow bones. They just have a very lightweight body plan wise. Uh, the other thing the pterosaurs are able to do is they have a really powerful launch. So they have really powerful limbs, and they can use all four legs to push off. They could have used all four legs to push off off the ground. But the main adaptation that allowed pterosaurs to fly which may be a little bit obviously, was their wings. Uh, so the shape of their wings was really important to allow flight. So, uh, and this is something that's actually, there's convergent evolution between bats and birds. So they also separately evolved this shape later on. And in um, aeronautics, this is known as the cambered airfoil. And basically the way this shape works is that it causes differences in airspeed, uh, different parts of the wing. So the air travels faster over the top and then the bottom. So in over the top, it's forced into vortices, um, and the bottom, it, it isn't. So there's a pressure difference that's created, and this pressure difference generates lift. And um, the width of the wings are, uh, depends on a couple of different factors, but larger birds could get away with larger wingspan because they could actually also use outside forces of lift. As I mentioned in Quetzalcoatlus, they may have used thermal vents um, or say some modern seabirds use like ocean currents and different things to, to generate lift. So they can get away with flapping a lot less uh, by having larger wings because they would have less drag. Uh, so smaller birds or pterosaurs 
can have thinner or less wide wings, but they would they would need to flap more because they have more drag. So uh, it's all about a balance between weight, lift, thrust, and drag. Um, and so flying does take a lot of energy, but it obviously is beneficial. So at pterosaurs, it would allow them to take advantage of a lot of different niches. So it's obviously worth this energy because it allowed them to find food, mates, escape predators. Um, and also with birds, it's interesting because their diet actually is very beneficial for flight. A lot of birds are uh, insect eaters or uh, fruit eaters, and they're very high energy, but uh, light foods. So they're able to get the energy they need to fly, but it's not weighing them down as well. Uh, with birds as well, their beak is another really cool adaptation for flight because it's light, so they don't have a heavy jaw and teeth, uh, but it's very powerful as well. Uh, so that's a cool. And feathers is another really um, important adaptation for birds as well. One thing you mentioned was there the, the weight of some of the animals, like birds having hollow bones <laughs> to make them weigh less. And one of the most amazing things I found was, so you know the goldcrest? It's the smallest mm -hmm. bird in the United Kingdom. Yes, I've, I've seen them. They're very cute and they're like tiny little balls with like a little tuft of Yeah, they, they've got a little mohawk on that going on. Yeah. So do you know how heavy they are? Very light. Like lighter than a, a like they're lighter than like a coin or, or a penny or something. So they're five grams, which is the same as in England, a 20 pence piece. It's also exactly the same as a, a teaspoon of water. <laughs> And that's not counting the spoon. It's not counting the spoon. Um, if you want an American version, it's the same as a nickel. And if our Euro version, it's actually lighter than a 20 cent piece of Euro. It's quite clever. It does quite clever things. And it weighs less than a coin. That just like boggles my mind. Birds have also some other adaptations for weight is that female birds generally only have one ovary instead of two ovaries and two oviducts they just have one which is really interesting an interesting weight adaptation and no bladders except one for bladder ostriches bladder. yeah yeah go that's one of my favorite facts <laughs> yeah but they don't they don't need to fly so they get their bladder um so i thought we should end on something else that's not really flight as you imagine it because i wanted to think about animals at airports oh yeah and i'm not just talking about sniffing dogs or the dogs that people carry in their little bags, the little tiny dogs. Yeah, yeah, not them. Um, but the animals which use the airport as their habitat, because airports are quite an unusual habitat in the first place. We, we, we manipulated quite a lot of land. So what's interesting is where I used to work was next to the biggest airport in England. And it was always recorded that where I was was the hottest place in the country. And actually wasn't. Where I was was fine because it was quite green. But next door because they've inv uh, like invented this huge concrete like plateau is get really really hot on the concrete and that's why it would be it appears such a hot place so it's actually quite a unique environment and also if you think they cut down all the trees so there's no there's no trees there there's very little cover um and there's a lot of plain grassy bits so um so what sort of animals might this attract and this could cause huge problems so one of them is bird strikes so bird strikes, I think, have killed 200 people in airplanes, basically because they crash into engines. And one of the big problems, Naomi, I'm not sure whether you'll be glad to hear this or sad to hear this, is geese. Because obviously it's another reason to be afraid of geese, but also it does involve the death of geese. 
So I guess for you in your head, the score is probably one all. That's a double-edged blade there, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bittersweet. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is a Canada geese, because cause we have those grassy bits. Geese eat grass, which is sort of weird to think about, but they do. Um, and they go there and they eat the grass. And this is a big problem because geese then take off when they're scared. Uh, say if a giant plane is coming, so they take off to about engine height and get pulled in. And this can cause big problems. So there are other ways um, so that they combat this. So you know some airports employ raptors. Cool. Yeah. So they hire raptors to go and like, fly about their airport. So all the other birds are like, let's not mess about. There's a raptor here. We can't live here. It will do us in. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, that doesn't always work because geese are quite big. So they're not necessarily scared of, of raptors. And they'll take that risk. But gulls and starlings also feed in airport grassland. Um, and also because there's lots of earthworms there because there's no human beings there. So when it rains, the earthworms come out and that can cause more problems. But also, conversely, is wild raptors have started to become a problem. Because on this grassland is a great environment for mice and such. And because there's no cover, this is perfect hunting ground for owls and raptors. Because they can suddenly see all the voles and mice that are living there. Also things like mice might be attracted by the trash that humans have left behind. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's huge reasons why um, there might be reasons for raptors to come down and use it as a hunting area. So uh, yeah, our flight has actually caused, um, yeah, problems that we perhaps wouldn't have foreseen. In a way, we're actually competing with other flying animals for the sky. So if the raptors don't really work for things like geese, which cause a lot of the problems, it sounds like the, most reasonable thing to do would be to rebirth the pterosaurs. That seems like it won't go terribly badly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Should we start with Pteranodon or the Quetzalcoatlus? I should go big or go home, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's nothing Naomi wouldn't do if it wasn't laced with the promise of like, and then there'll be less geese. Yes. <laughs> Just pterosaurs to deal with, you know. But that does bring us to the end of our conversation on flight. Uh, we'll be back next week, though. I think we're going to be talking about Sub-Zero. You guys up for that? Oh, yeah. I'm shivering in anticipation. I yeah. think it sounds cool. I think it's going to be a really chill episode. But that does mean that it is time to go. If you did enjoy that, please do check out our website. You can find us at thenaturalselection.net. You can also find a link to our Facebook and blogs and things. So please do check us out and see what we link. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or some such, please do give us a review because it really, really helps us out. But for now, it's time for us to say goodbye. So bye, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. And the first mention, I think, for Jerry Seinfeld in our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's in the B movie. Yeah, I think he wrote it. Is he the B? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. That's a low... What's the deal with powered flight? Right. That's my Jerry Seinfeld. Excellent. You're welcome. Could be, could be worse. <laughs> could be. <laughs>